Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with my co-host, Hondo Gertz. And today we have Frank Finelli joining us. We're so excited to dig into Frank's background, which includes 25 years at the Carlisle Group, where he currently serves as managing director, focused on investments in the defense and aerospace sector, but started off uh, as a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and uh, served in the Army, and from there went to the Hill. So spent time in each of the stakeholders, uh, groups that we've mentioned, and, and is really spearheading uh, important issues at Ben's, where you've been a member for almost as long as you've been with the Carlisle Group now. So, Frank, welcome to our show, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Lauren, thank you so very much. Yes, I think I've been a Ben's member since 1999 when I uh, left the Hill and was introduced to Ben's while I was on the Hill with Mr. Carlucci, uh, who was very involved at that time with the Tail to Tooth Commission, which was a tremendous piece of thought leadership for Ben's. That's fantastic. So, Frank, I, uh, I, I would venture to guess as a uh, young Army artillery officer, you didn't foresee uh, serving a great part of your career in private equity. Uh, my guess is you may not have actually known what private equity was at the time. How, uh, how did you come to uh, this kind of interesting career trajectory what what uh what got you there and 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 uh, i hear you have the navy to thank for it well so. I, I i sure do hondo um you're right when i joined uh, the Carlisle group back in the end of 1998 we didn't even know what it was called uh, it was kind of leveraged buyouts that later picked up the name of private equity but i, I was very fortunate um as uh you know, to go to the military academy. And I went to the military academy to swim on the swim team, which is a dumb idea. I'd have a better, a better reason than that. But um, it, it gave me an opportunity to really study and get involved in economics. And I'm very grateful that the Army sent me to MIT to study uh, finance and operations research, which helped throughout my military career. And my last assignment was on the joint staff, uh, where I had the fortune of working for uh, the vice chairman, then Admiral Bill Owens, who was uh, tremendous. And there were a lot of, he stacked the deck with Navy guys, as you can imagine, on the joint staff. And I joked that those Navy guys ruined my Army career, and I can't thank them enough, uh, because uh, Admiral Owens introduced me to Senator Dan Coates, and I was able to retire and then transition over to uh, Senator Coates' office and work with the Armed Services Committee. What, what was it like on the Hill? What was that transition like going from, uh, you know, occurring in the military to, you know, be over, you know, almost switching sides to, to uh, you know, uh, fraternizing with the enemy, so to speak. You know, you kind of get that sense of the Pentagon sometimes. You're right. It was it was a ton of fun. And and you it, it was also a, a magnificent opportunity because Senator Coates had just co-sponsored the legislation for the National Force Structure Review Act of 1997, which established the first quadrennial defense review. And so I was involved in doing that review in the Pentagon and then went over to work the Hill piece where there was a national defense panel that was kind of a red team, if you will. And so that was the interest in really working for Senator Coates. But it was not that different, quite frankly. Uh, it was kind of funny because we pushed some 
points on legislation. And it was only a couple of weeks later before the chairman was back over in our office on the Hill working on, on some issues and stuff like that. So it was a ton of fun. And then when Senator Coates retired in 1998, I got fired as is the custom on the Hill. And that's when I transitioned to the Carlisle group. Mm-hmm. And so Frank, you've paid close attention to the defense industrial base for many years now, and your involvement with Ben's reflects your interest in the importance of public-private partnerships. And something we talk about on our show quite a bit is the importance of commercial technology companies in collaboration with national security mission sets. So figuring out how to stimulate more interest from commercial tech companies who don't traditionally sell into the government to, to... be able to navigate that more effectively. Can you talk a little bit about why you see this collaboration as so important? Well, it is absolutely important. And as we're working with business executives for national security now with uh, Hondo, the article that you've wrote and with General Joe Votel, there really is a need to envision a future, a future industrial network. And that future industrial network will have to embody both the classic defense industrial base, as well as commercial technology companies and the manufacturing base. Um, We have seen really three prominent studies just in the last quarter relating to China. Um, We have DOD's report to Congress. Uh, We had the uh, Commission on the Economic and Security Review to Congress. And then we've had this uh, index of military strength that the Heritage Foundation puts out each year. And it is absolutely clear that the Chinese have closed the gap and in some cases surpassed us in terms of defense and industrial capability. And like it or not, China is in competition with us, not only militarily, but economically. And this is why I think it is so very, very important. And to, to just add one more point to it, defense technology is absolutely necessary, but developing the agility of the technology cycles from the commercial sector, where now commercial R&D is almost four times the level of government-funded R&D in the United States. Absolutely crucial. So, Frank, I think um, you you highlight a really important point here, and and one we brought out in kind of that visionary article of, of better leveraging what is arguably one of the greatest strengths of our nation, which is our economic horsepower in our financial marketplace, uh, so to speak. But I think sometimes we fall in the trap of, we say, you know, capital as if it's just one thing and operates just in one way. Can you help our listeners maybe uh, with a little bit of the basics from your perspective of kind of the differences between venture capital and say private equity as it's defined now and and how either of those have either strengths or weaknesses when we talk about it interacting with our national security and defense industrial base? Yeah, Hondo, thanks. It's a really great question. These are very two very different investing disciplines. And furthermore, you know, neither venture capital nor private equity is homogeneous. So, I mean, there's, there's many, many different approaches to both. But the way I think of it is venture capital is really that earlier stage Uh, investing process where you're valuing companies based on their expectation of revenue and earnings. With private equity, we're going to become owners of largely established companies and we're going to value them based on their demonstrated revenues and earnings and then our expectations of what we can think in the future. 
And so we're going to be long-term investors, probably five to eight years is the classic holding period. And that enables us to develop detailed value creation plans to take a company from where it is today to where we think it could be based on the management team's capabilities, our knowledge of the marketplace and where we think there are opportunities. So I think they're absolutely complementary. I think as we look at the future of the uh, industrial base for America's security, there's also the opportunity for a nexus where these private equity companies become great channel partners that help to integrate the technology for the venture capital community that is being developed there. And so I think this is one of the key distinctions that we have. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm sensing this growing, both sides kind of growing into this middle where venture, now you hear about growth venture and you hear about private equity maybe getting a little bit earlier stage or at least at the, you know, earlier in the scaling process than it's had before. Do you see that as a kind of growing trend or a gap that needs to be filled or is it, how do you sense the where, where the kind of Venn diagram sits between those two communities? No, I mean, Hondo, I think that's a very insightful comment because you do have to provide capital dynamically across the life cycle of these companies. And I think if you take a step back at the highest level, the first thing that the founders in a company, whoever is the genius with the idea, they have to develop that technology. The second piece is that as that technology has to be transitioned into a product or a service. The third part is that product or service then has to be sold to generate revenue, and that's where it takes contracting. Those first two pieces are really the forte of the venture capital markets. And in the United States, the venture capital markets are very deep and very mature. And so, again, if companies are not getting support there, is because the market is not providing the signals that indicate their demand for whatever the technology may develop into. When people talk about the valley of death, I really think about it in this third area where they've already developed the technology, they've already transitioned it into products or services, but the contracts haven't come fast enough to generate the revenue to sustain these companies in their growth. That's where we need to really um, leverage the capital markets uh, to, and, and also rely on the Department of Defense and, and military applications to provide those demand signals, maybe those credit guarantees, maybe those um, future contracting activities that give companies confidence to get the investments they need to get to the next phase. Because if the contracts are not coming through from the Department of Defense, Often the DOD is blocking these companies from selling their technology products to somebody else because of regulatory controls. And so these companies are in a really tough spot. That's the value of death we have to work on getting them through. Mm-hmm. And, and Frank, we're sitting here at a, an interesting time from an economic perspective with inflation and uh, a kind of dark uh, economic outlook from a potential recession standpoint. And at the same time, you talked about China as a real driver for stronger collaboration between commercial technology investors and the Department of Defense or national security uh, community, more broadly speaking. I'm curious for your take on the economic outlook, but that growing demand, too. And and when there is a downturn, the government's a great customer. But uh, are you seeing increased 
interest from the, the investment community to look at defense markets, or is that going to decline because of this economic outlook? Just interested in your take there. Lauren, that's a really hard question uh, to address. The, what I think is driving the investor appetite is China. And I think if you, you know, some people talk about, look, U.S. defense budgets at above $800 billion, China's at 250 260 But if you tear this apart and look at where the money's going, a much higher share of China's budget goes towards investment in science and technology. That's investment in production as well as science and technology uh, than it does in the United States. They also have an asset securitization fund where they leverage the capital markets to expand their uh, investments in modernization. And when you do this comparison and put a purchasing power parity adjustment multiple on it, it's very likely that China is out investing us. And that's something that we ought to be concerned about. The second part of it, though, is they're also out innovating us. And there's some research that indicates that their, their innovation cycles may be five times faster than what we're seeing in the U.S. military through Department of Defense channels. And so this is what is motivating, I think, the investor appetite to try to get behind defense technology because we are losing airspeed and altitude to China in these areas uh, for military capability and the development of technology. So I think this is the, the primary catalyst. It's not economically driven. It's driven by this competition. That's fascinating. And I'm, I'm very glad to hear it because I thought perhaps the stronger demand signal from the customer base, the U.S. government on this front was driving private markets, but it sounds like the, the geopolitical environment is also influencing it too. So with that in mind, I wanted to also ask about um, foreign capital and, and the risk that foreign investment poses to critical capabilities in, in U.S. companies. Are you seeing a better understanding of that risk across the private sector, or what's your take on foreign investment risks at, at this time? It is a big risk. I do think that there have been enhancements in the regulatory processes. So, I mean, it's hard. I don't have the visibility on whether that's being blocked as efficiently as it or effectively as it should be or not. But clearly there needs to be very detailed reviews of where this funding is coming from and who has access to the core technology. This is not about limited partners who don't get any access to any information or anything else like that. But it is about people that will be investors who will get seats on boards or on advisory councils or be able to collaborate with the management team to gain some insights on what's really going on in the development of this technology. The other thing that has to be understood, though, this isn't where we can kind of build up U.S. trusted investors to compete against the Chinese investors because the Chinese will pay prices that are nowhere near what the market clearing price is. They will pay a premium. And so I think it's, um, it's naive to think that you're going to find U.S. investors that are going to be willing to pay the prices that Chinese investors essentially uh, backstop by the Chinese government will be willing to pay for some of these investments. And that's something that we have to watch. And I think the regulatory process needs to be even thickened to address this issue. Yeah, so Frank, you and I are in a, a number of uh, activities, whether through Benz or uh, Atlantic Council, trying to, I think there's been a recognition we are not, um, we haven't taken advantage of our economic strength, uh, particularly in national security. What are some tangible, but, but I would say we've admired the problem, 
collectively for, for a great number of years. What are some of your ideas on more tangible steps? You know, the uh, SECDEF just announced the Office of Strategic Capital. What, what would be, if we were heading in the right direction, some first steps we could take to really, I would say, move the needle in regard to leveraging our capital as a nation better? Well, I know this is absolutely an opportunity. And the U.S. has, without a doubt, the deepest capital markets in the world, well over $50 trillion. We are not taking advantage of that in the Department of Defense. And unfortunately, the DOD remains constrained by our planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process, PBBE as it is being called, which essentially means that you can't move money within two years, um, if then. And so with technology development cycles that are in a matter of, you know, let's just say months, um, you know, we're, we're missing the opportunity here. We've got to develop more agility. Uh, the capital markets can certainly help with that. I am encouraged by what we've seen recently through the Chips and Science Act, Inflation Reduction Act, and some of the other legislation where other departments have really stepped up to start to leverage the capital markets, Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, Department of Commerce, and I think DOD has a similar opportunity to try to leverage these capital markets. And it may not be through, you know, they don't need to make equity investments in these companies, but they certainly can influence the credit markets and they can provide strong market signals to motivate investors to also get more heavily involved. I think this is where a lot of the opportunity rests, but the leveraging the capital markets is the key to success in getting more agility and more velocity and funding that we can use to direct towards technology as it gets developed for the Department of Defense. And so I've heard you mention the credit or debt guarantee side of things. Unpack that a little bit for us. What what's what are some more specific uh, ideas or opportunities that kind of lay in that sense? Because we tend to think of the DOD strength as either signaling or making non-dilutive investments. Um, but really haven't talked much more beyond those two kind of mechanisms. Right. Uh, the credit markets are actually very deep, deeper than the equity markets in the United States. And there is an opportunity to essentially guarantee borrowing from companies to help support technology development. It could also be used to accelerate the procurement of new equipment that becomes available or to address infrastructure requirements that might be holding back readiness of our fleets, uh, whether it's aircraft or vehicles or ships. And I think this framework of credit guarantees, which has been used in the past to produce ships, we actually used it in some of the uh, automobile situations as well, uh, from a commercial perspective or, or, or dealing with commercial companies, would be that the United States government would provide some form of backstop to the credit there are ways that that gets valued based on risk metrics. And so reserves would have to be used associated with it. But essentially, it provides a mechanism for the lenders to have some comfort that an entity is standing behind it. And I think we see this every we see this very frequently in the infrastructure markets today, where different parts of the U.S. government or state or local governments are providing backstops for the funding of loans to projects and different initiatives across the country. 
And Frank, I want to go back to uh, just the makeup of the current defense industrial base and where it's headed. And and these loan programs would likely be focused more on small businesses or these newer entrants that um, are having trouble navigating the valley of death. But I've been surprised by how often I hear even the big five talk about the valley of death as an issue and, and the, the large companies. So this isn't just a company, uh, an issue that small companies are facing. Um, but something Honda especially likes to zero in on is that disappearing middle and how m- maybe selecting many, many small companies for very small awards isn't the right way to go from an even economic perspective if you think about incentivizing these companies to grow. So could you talk a little bit about that current makeup of the defense industrial base and what it should look like? Well, Lauren, you raise a very important point because this must scale beyond small business. Um, The Department of Defense, to its credit, has made tremendous progress in developing a whole bunch of initiatives that have I think of it as really effectively diversified the science and technology base for the Department of Defense using some of these venture capital and small business initiatives. That has really, really widened the aperture of technology that is available and being considered by the department, and that's a big win. I think that's a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition for catching up with, I think, where the Chinese have have essentially equaled or even surpassed U.S. capability in some of these areas. We have got to go to small, medium, and large companies. And again, a lot of this capital market financing that could be provided, some of it will go to technology development, but a lot of it would go to transition. I mean, if you're going to now start building stuff, you got to build factories and you got to build it very quickly. And it doesn't help you if the MilCon funding doesn't come in until three years from now, Right. And so this can be a way to really very aggressively address the facilitization so that you can transition this technology and get it fielded quickly. And I, again, that, that is, I think, scale agnostic from a corporate perspective. So we've got to address all three areas. Now, getting back to the point about the Office of Strategic Capital, I, I am quite excited about this initiative because I do think they recognize this is about more than just playing small ball on steroids, Right. Um, we have got to address medium company needs. We've got to leverage the, the technical capability of large companies. And unfortunately, one of the problems is the vast majority of the science and technology funding in the Department of Defense, they spend internally. It goes to their own research and development centers. It goes to the university-affiliated research centers. It goes to the federally funded research and development centers. And those are essentially in competition with the private sector. And so it's almost a disincentive for investing the capital markets can be a way to, I think, level that, help level that playing field if there becomes a framework where it can be accepted and investors or lenders get more confidence in the process. So um, I want to turn back a little bit to private equity because I think for the uninformed, you know, many see that as predatory, you know, buying out and leverage buyout and, and don't really understand necessarily how private equity helps either improve efficiency or uh, allows for a way to bring in capital to then create long-term efficiency. Where have you seen private equity really have a positive impact on the industrial base? And, and do, you see, do you see more opportunity for that to continue and scale? Or are we kind of at the limit of how private equity can, can help us you know, modernize and gain efficiency so we remain competitive? Yeah, well, it's... 
certainly private equity has been an active player in the uh, in both the aerospace and the defense segment. And there's different strategies. Um, I think in a lot of cases, these private equity strategies have been to buy companies and help them grow. That's largely been the approach that we have taken at the Carlaw Group. Um, there have been some cases in other sectors primarily where companies have been bought and and divested in, in smaller pieces, but I, I think those situations are relatively rare. But it's really this ability to put capital behind an opportunity where private equity differentiates itself because we can take long-term value creation strategies and make them real. Um, you know, the one I think about from your Navy experience, which you're familiar with, is, I mean, we started what became the largest U.S. ship repair business for the military. It became U.S. Marine Repair and now part of British Aerospace, BAE Systems. But that started with one dirt shipyard in Norfolk and grew to the largest uh, ship repair capability for the Navy because of the investment that was enabled by private equity. Uh, we've seen uh, this in also the supply chains, uh, tier ones, tier twos, where there's been significant investment behind some of the key players in land systems and aircraft systems that enable the system integrators. And I think the other area where you've seen a lot of activity more recently is in the services sector, where there are now three of the largest um, technical services providers are private equity owned or were private equity built and grew to scale now approaching $10, tri- or $10 billion uh, of revenue. So again, uh, the ability to put capital behind these, um, these companies to address market opportunities is real. So everything, everything I saw in Pretty Woman with Richard Gere may not be true. Yeah, you're, you're the good Richard Gere of private equity. Uh, yeah, well, I haven't, I haven't seen that situation <laughs> unfold. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I think um, particularly, and, and maybe just to build on that a little bit, I think private equities, you talk to infrastructure a lot, and certainly the DOD has got a, a ton of huge infrastructure uh, issues from World War II facilities to depots and whatnot. What success have, have you seen, I would say, maybe at the state and local level where they've been able to create public-private partnerships to modernize everything from airports to other large uh, things. Is that an opportunity for the DOD that they should be thinking about rather than just giant Milcon uh, outlays? Yes, there, there really are some great examples here. I mean, we've seen it as a way to bring private capital to accelerate the modernization of ports and airports. Uh, JFK Terminal 1 is a great example, which is really lagged from global standards. Uh, The New York Port Authority, New York, New Jersey Port Authority put out a solicitation. They now have a great program on board to getting a a new Terminal 1. You see it at LaGuardia as well. Um, So that's one of the more prominent things, but it's also associated with some telecommunications infrastructure other utility infrastructures to enable them to upgrade at different areas across the country. There are a lot of very old facilities across the Department of Defense that need to be recapitalized. And in many cases, that recapitalization is being deferred. And and it's almost as if the DOD thinks they don't incur any cost. But there's huge costs being incurred because the readiness cycles are being delayed. And so when you take 
you know, the prominent example is the shipyard infrastructure optimization project where we have dry docks across the Navy's four public yards that are all date back to World War II. Um, those are not being recapitalized or replaced at speed, and they cost a lot of money. But the problem is you've got three submarines that are waiting at pier to get into those dry docks because the submarines that are in there are taking longer than they had planned to complete their availabilities. That's $15 billion of capital at rest. And yet the DOD doesn't consider a cost associated with that. This is some of the thinking that really needs to come into play so that we understand the opportunity cost associated with these readiness hits and we leverage the capital markets to take advantage of them. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, but it's not terribly unrelated because as you think through identifying companies, growing companies, and and the successful uh, transaction between these different communities, workforce is key, right? And I think top of mind on both the private sector side and the U.S. government side, what are you seeing in terms of interest from talent in the defense industrial base? Are you seeing any um, trends that are concerning or the flip side, promising trends on that front? Well, here there's kind of two different worlds. Um, I think there is increased interest in really the exciting technical problems that are being addressed by not only the defense industry, but let me let me just broaden it to keep industries associated with U.S. military and economic security. So that gets into semiconductor supply chains and a whole bunch of other other areas. And without a doubt, there's people being attracted to those to those um, niche industries, and, and that's very important. Um, we are also seeing now some stress on big tech, uh, as you see layoffs at, you know, announced across the board. Um, that's freeing up some of these very talented people to come back into the marketplace, and so I, I think that's going to create some opportunity. I am, though, very concerned about the recruiting situation in the military, where the propensity to serve has declined tremendously. It's been hard enough to get people to just be qualified. Less than 25% of the young Americans that are in that pool, eligible pool, even meet the qualifications to serve. But even among those who qualify, the propensity to enlist has dropped tremendously. That's something that America has to take on. It's a huge problem. And and I have to just say how blessed I was to have served. And I would hope that uh, other people will take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, it's... um. Um, but there are lots of ways to serve, as you say, and and we've got to figure out how to leverage that talent pool. Um, back to uh, any other tangible steps, you know, is if you were talking to the SecDef right now or the new Office of Strategic Capital, what what would be some things you'd recommend that a you know natural you know six months or twelve months steps to to get the ball mo- moving uh, in in a forward direction and really you know. What should be the Office of Strategic Capital? What should be some early first moves that they could do? But, you know, you're putting on your hat as a, uh, as a, as a, a key leader in a financial market. What would help, what could they do to help you help them, so to speak? Well, I, I know I think it really comes back to demand signals. And if they're going to create demand signals, that's got to be through contracting at some point. And right now, there is way too little contract from the Department of Defense. You have tons of companies that have great solutions that never get the opportunity to compete and win to sell them into the Department of Defense. And if there's anything that uh, could be strategically done within the department, I think it's trying to 
really double down in efforts to diversify the contracting base, create more opportunity for more players to get involved. That will drive more investment because it creates more opportunity. Um, so I think that's a first start. Look, you know, we've got over $850 billion a year in the defense budget. This is not about a shortage of money. This is about how the money is spent. And I think that's the thing that needs to happen. Key examples in aftermarket, sustainment programs. Almost all of those are sole sourced with no competitive opportunity. And yet, as we've seen in commercial sectors, tremendous opportunity to reduce costs there by bringing in a larger set of players and diversify that supply chain, make it competitive. Yeah. And, I, and as you said, I think in Milcon and some of the infrastructure stuff too, they're really, we should really look at it. You know, I really like your point of that we don't really assess the opportunity cost either in readiness or just, the, you know, when you're doing Milcon budgets and you're having to break up these large capital programs kind of falsely into bits and pieces, because that's the only way you can get them through the system at some almost random sequence really, really um, doesn't leverage the strength we have uh, to put dollars front. When you when you work on these municipal programs, um, there's a sense that, well, we're going to, you know, we're making a deal with the devil and the DOD won't own its infrastructure. And, you know, you'll a short term gain, but a long term loss. Uh, but I think in many of the deals that have been done, say, for airports or bridges, it's not a loss of ownership, so to speak. And so can you maybe talk about that myth that's, you know, I think that in, in again, folks who don't really understand all the dynamics at play kind of kind of get the sense of, well, we're going to outsource all our infrastructure, then we can't go to war and we'll be paying for it forever at, you know, five times the going rate. Well, yeah, Hondo, you're exactly right. This is not, you know, throwing the keys to somebody else and just walking away. I think if you look at the examples that have really performed well, it's, be, it's where contracts were very clear. Both sides understood their responsibilities and fulfilled their responsibilities. So there's very active oversight to make sure that maintenance standards are maintained. The readiness of these facilities, for example, are sustained. Improvements in them are brought forward just as they were pre-agreed to. And I think if you hold that joint accountability on both sides, these programs can be very, very successful. And this is really, I think, fundamentally the part of the partnership that can move forward. Now, in order for that to work, there's got to be, you know, skin in the game on both sides. And, and I think there's been, there's really great precedent out there for how to make that happen. Well, Frank, these are a lot of great ideas and we're excited about the work you're doing through Benz to promote them. And, and I know eager to get them to folks like those on the PPBE commission, because you mentioned that as an area where we really could see improvement. But your take on the private sector's understanding of the threat China poses, I think, is very promising. And we like to use this show to talk about it as well. So thank you for hitting on that. And I, I think it's a very timely discussion given the Office of Strategic Capital's launch and um, hope to collaborate closely with them. So, Frank, thank you so much for joining. Well, thank you, Lauren. It's been a delight to speak with you and Hondo today. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.